0: Are important that they're important in every aspect. I think we can all describe our lives in four fundamental relationships: our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to other people, a relationship to the world, and maybe even our relationship to God. And really, Jesus condenses these four relationships into two in the scriptures, and he says that there's a love of God and a love of neighbor and others. Those are the two fundamental ships that we're grappling with. And I, look, I think this is pretty obvious. I don't want to belabor the point, but I mean like, who you love and who you think loves you makes a world of difference, doesn't it? About who we are and how we view ourselves and what we identify as. I think, um, and really the last few weeks, we've really been digging into this how and this why question of relationships. Like, Why are relationships so very important to us? Why is that? And then, how come each and every one of us in this room feels like our relationships are messy and we have mixed feelings about our relationships? Highs and lows about them. Um, And I'm calling these first few weeks of our study foundations, the foundations of relationships, and we've been in this as our third week, we'll have a week or two left of foundations, and really, as you may have noticed, in scripture, these, this foundation is actually a story, it's not a bunch of principles that are loosely tied together into a philosophy, it's actually a story, and that story is what theologians call creation, fall, and redemption. But it might actually help us to enlist a, a counselor and author, Larry Crabbe, to help describe That's exactly what the story arc here means. And so, the story of relationships is told from the very beginning, and it sounds like this. We were designed for a relationship. Not merely good relationships, but perfect ones, in which we give our best to other people in happy confidence that they will enjoy what we give and be deeply blessed by it. But God's design and our happy confidence have fallen, haven't they? It's not quite the way it was. And so we end up We end up in this position that Genesis 3 describes so accurately. So Genesis 1 and 2 describe what it means to be held up, what it means to be longing for perfect relationships. Genesis 3 describes what it means to be vulnerable, what it means to be um, innocent. But that innocence, that vulnerability, shifts to fear and then shifts to blame and to hiding. So We still feel a cynical fallout in the present, even when we sincerely long for the very relationships that we feel so mixed about, don't we? We want warm, satisfying companionship, and we want meaningful intimacy. But we still have the cynicism about all of the above. And so really, Genesis 3 last week left us with a promise that heartache is not the last word. And also a sacrifice that provided a way forward in the messiness and the hurt of relationships. A way in which we could actually move forward and we could experience God's solution. His redemption of our relationships. And what is our role to play in that solution is what we started to peek at in Genesis 3. And so tonight and the next week we're going to look at God's redemption, His solution, and what part we play. And tonight we're going to look at the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Verses 1 through 16. But before I go into Jonah in this passage, let me pray and gather my thoughts and gather our hearts together before the Lord. Father, I have to confess I'm a little distracted. Um, And I know that you know that. And I know that everyone here knows that. Um, And I pray that you would be with us. That you'd honor um, our desire, wherever we are with you, Uh, to be in your presence to learn from you about what it means uh, to serve you what it means to to gaze into relationships and ask hard questions what it means uh, to run away and I pray that you would show us in your word Jesus Jesus high and lifted up Jesus more believable more beautiful than we can imagine and I pray Father that you give us a radical honesty that calls us to Jesus that calls Jesus to us. And I pray, Father, that you would nurture and encourage us, um, even in the midst of distractions that we brought into this room, that are in this room, and maybe that we're leaving with. And I pray that you would transform those things and that you would um, set this time apart and change us in the very core of our being. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it was my senior year of college. Another embarrassing college story for you. Um, And I was driving back from winter break. Um, You have to understand, I was something of a fourth quarter quarterback in uh, college. I loved the two minute drill. That was basically all I ran. So I would wait to the very last second to do all of my work. And so I was not a stranger to the last, uh, the cram session, the all nighter. Um, and so I had a had a system before energy drinks were real popular, where I had double fist Mountain Dew, and the original energy drink, and I would then eventually take a nap between two and four a.m., and that's how I basically got through finals every single semester. Brutal. Um, would not try that at home, okay? So or at Davidson. Anyway, as you can imagine, this time of it took its toll on my wakefulness. And in particular, uh, it took its toll on a particular seven-hour drive I had my senior semester from North Carolina to Ohio back home for the holidays, right? And so I think, I want you to picture me in my car. I was drowsy. I had packed everything I owned, a laundry bag. It was a sad, disheveled mess. Um, And I had this peace, though, like, I got it done, I finished my exams, nothing for three weeks, you know, at that time three weeks felt like a long time and I was driving this route that I had driven every single holiday every single holiday didn't change locations when I, when I was growing up or when I was in college so I drove back and forth eight different times, this is the seventh to the same place, Okay, same route and, um, and though I was a bit tired and a bit distracted I had full confidence full confidence that I could make it to this destination in a timely fashion that I would be home alright And I remember uh, I had bought and was listening to this awful audiobook um, that described tree rings and it was just miserable. So I was very, not the kind of thing you're looking for when you're trying to get pepped up uh, for a drive. But as I was listening to this, I saw this interstate sign fly by my right hand side. And I was like, wait a minute. I paused the CD player. Was that, did that say what I thought it said? And so. Of course, I narrowed my eyes in concentration, tightened my 9 and 12 position on the wheel, right, and looked forward with determination, not going to miss the next sign. And sure enough, a little later I saw the same sign, obviously a different one, but the same sign in the same direction, it said that I was going I-64 east, the exact opposite of the way I was supposed to be going. If you know me at all, that's not that surprising. Um, but I have no sense of direction. So anyway, I've been going the wrong direction for, at 70 miles per hour for at least an hour. Brutal. Have you had this moment? So here's a question. What did I need to do to make this right? What did I need to do to get home, right? Could I just ignore my mistake, keep driving, white knuckles, 70 miles per hour in the going east on I-64, and somehow get home to Ohio? Well, I did try that a little bit. I have to confess. <laughs> um, no, I needed to pull off the highway, have an honest moment with myself, Sid, how could you? And admit
1: <laughs>
0: that I had gone the wrong direction for a better part of an hour at 70 miles per hour. And look, this honesty would not have actually been enough to get me home, would it? Right? Me on the side of the road. I actually had to turn around my car and drive the opposite way, I-64 West. Okay, And then I'd actually get home for Christmas. So to finish my story, again, eventually, after a while, I did pull off. I did uh, have a good talk with myself. Got honest. And then I did turn around my car and I did drive the right direction. I'm assuming you knew this because... I, well, I'll be somewhere on the eastern seaboard still. I don't know. What would the... Anyway, I feel like people like really want me to resolve my story, so there you go. Okay, I did go in the right direction, and I made it home way late into the evening. But I, mean, I want you to understand, that pulling off on the side of the road, on an exit, and having an honest conversation with myself, is a picture of what the Bible calls confession. That's what confession looks like. Okay? And that turning around and going the right direction, west, towards home, is a picture of what the Bible calls repentance. And that's what we're going to talk about this evening. We see it so clearly in um, the book of Jonah, minus the cars and highways. Because you see, Jonah comes to a similar understanding about how the spiritual life works. Jonah has run away from God. He's run away from himself and his community. But then God intercedes in a loving way and Jonah, in response, confessed who he was and who his God was and then he turned around, right? He stopped his mad getaway. He threw himself off the boat so that he could both face himself in that moment of confession and face others in that moment of repentance. And really, the book of Jonah speaks to us in our humanity and also in our space at Davidson here, I think, Because here's what it's asking us. It's asking us to honestly examine our relationships. Our relationships with God and our relationships with other people. And it's asking us this question. Are we confessing and are we repenting? And really, it's asking this question because confession and repentance is part and parcel of God's cure. his redemption for our relationship problems. They are the motion that draws messy, hurting people together. You see, if we don't repent and confess, we move farther and farther away from each other. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, tells us this truth. It's very simple. Practice confession and repentance in your relationships. Because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has given you the freedom to do so. Okay? Okay? So we've got to practice repentance and faith in our relationships because Jesus' Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has given us that freedom to fully and finally repent and confess who we are. And so I'd like to really just basically take the rest of the evening to discuss the context... And the actions associated with confession, and repentance, that we see in the story of Jonah in chapter one, verses one through sixteen. And I think, not surprisingly, if you if you've heard a few sermons, it breaks down to three points. Okay, there's three plot points that we're looking at. Okay, and I know you don't have a handout, so I'm going to try to repeat these. Okay, first, in verses one through three, we see the problem. Okay, the problem is this. Why we run away from relationships. So verses 1 through 3, why, why we run away from relationships, the problem. Okay? Verses 4 through 6, we see God's solution to our problem confrontation and conflict. God's solution to our problem is confrontation and conflict. We see that in verses 4 through 6. And third and finally, in verses 7 through 16, we see our role in God's solution. And our role in God's solution is confession and repentance. That is how we run towards, not from, relationships. Okay? Oh, okay. So we, we moved there. Awesome. Um, so, as usual, okay, I guess we don't really have those, those three main points on a handout, but for the note ninjas, I'm sure you can, you can have that down by now. So let's look at the beginning. Begin at the beginning as usual. And let's look at that first point of why we run from relationships in verses 1 through 3 of Jonah. Okay, we're going to start in verse 2. Verse 2 puts it pretty plainly. God told Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Here's my question. What is it about that mission that makes Jonah turn in the exact opposite direction and run as far away as he possibly could? The farthest west destination in the known world, Tarshish. What is it about that mission that makes him do that in verse three? One word. Nineveh, Nineveh, a little history. Can we, can we bear with that? They're already applauding for me. History. Yes. <laughs> Nineveh is a very loaded destination, OK, God his shoes. Why? Because it's the city of the original evil empire, Assyria. Do we know anything about Assyria? Assyria was not just the military enemy of Israel. Okay, it was the enemy of a lot of peoples in ancient Near East. It made them pay a uh, what's the word? Tribute, and it also basically threatened Israel's existence to wipe it out of existence for almost all of its entirety of, Is- of Assyria's reign. But you know what's amazing about Assyria is they backed up all of these threats with incredible cruelty. So this is a quote, just to back up that saying, from Assyria's own royal archives. This is not Israelite propaganda. This isn't from like the ancient Israel times, okay? It's Israel, it's Assyria's excuse me, own history. The Assyrian king, I'm gonna try to do this, Azur Paul II. If you just go fast, no one notices. Okay, Asher and Paul II boasts, this is his quote, I took their warriors prisoner. Many of the captives I burned in fire. Captives, I burned in fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I burnt their young men and women to death. That's messed up. That's messed up, isn't it? This is a king bragging about torturing and dishonoring people who surrendered to him. Women and children. Just let that sink in for a second. Maybe you're starting to understand why Jonah was a little bit consternated. Okay? So, But Jonah is not just running away out of fear. And we know this because of later in Jonah, in chapter 4, verse 2, we see that Jonah doesn't flee as far west as possible because he's scared. We read in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, this. Jonah says to God, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from judgment. What? You see, Jonah ran from the relationship with God and from his relationship with God's people because he thought God was unfair. He ran because he thought God was unfair. Jonah thought that God would hurt those who follow him and trust him. And he thought that he was going to love the people that torture Israelites for fun. And really, this is the same reason we run from relationships, isn't it? We run from God and other people because we feel like they're unfair and they're hurtful. And maybe other people are actually hurting us, even right now. Maybe other people... Will hurt us and have hurt us in the past. And look, before we get this, I'm going to say this again in the, in the weeks coming. But I want to I want to be real clear. I'm not advocating anyone to return to abusive relationships. Okay, I'm not advocating anyone to go back to an abusive relationship and get abused. You know, Jesus tells us to be harmless as serpents and wise as oh, sorry <laughs> harmless as doves and wise as serpents. Okay, wise as serpents. And this wisdom is actually oftentimes removing yourself from a person or a relationship that's abusive and sometimes rendering them over to the legal consequences of their action. How do I know this? Because the book of Proverbs, right? The book of Proverbs tells us that at the very least the Bible is not calling us to treat every single person we meet with the same level of intimacy, the same level of innocence, Okay? The book of Proverbs says there's scoffers and there's fools, and there's versus friends. And you don't treat scoffers and fools the same way you treat friends and vice versa. Okay, More on that later. Okay? That said, I want to put this very clearly. If you run away from every relationship that hurts, you will have no relationships. Okay? If you run away from every relationship that hurts, you're going to have no relationships. The people who are married are already smiling. Okay? Why? Because every human being on earth, on this planet, including you, including me, every single person, will at times manipulate you and manipulate the situation, the relationship, to his or her advantage. Look, your friend, your parent, your significant other will sometimes, maybe even often, argue just to win the argument and not to portray the truth. I know it's shocking. <laughs> Okay? And they will at least sometimes make you hurt just because they hurt. And it's this fear of getting hurt, right? Whether that's getting socially snubbed or feeling like we're about to become emotionally overdependent, or maybe it's just failing at relationships in general that we're afraid of. Whatever it is, the fear of relationships kills relationships, it makes us run for Tarshish. And by the way, Tarshish in the, in the Old Testament for the Hebrews, for the Israelites, was a remote fantasy tropical getaway. It was the place of monkeys and gold and splendor. Honestly. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 10. Okay, so look, maybe Tarshish for us. What is Tarshish for us? Okay, I'm just going to say Tarshish as many times as possible. <laughs> okay, what is Tarshish for us? Tarshish is a deep, Okay, maybe for us it's a deep, personal, heart-to-heart relationship with a Netflix original. Okay? Maybe Tarshish is a fake, airbrushed world that's, that's populated by instant click, yes, get-whatever-you-want pornography. Maybe Tarshish is the way in which um, you have a relationship with calorie counting that you think you always win, but you're actually losing. Relational hurts and the fear of them make us run to a room with the shutters closed and a locked door. Relational relational hurts sometimes make us run to the exact opposite, but feels the same—a courtyard full of people who really don't want to know you and will never say anything honest to you. Listen to the way that C.S. Lewis confesses his own tendency to run, to flee. This that he sees it in himself. Okay, it's a rather lengthy quotation, but C.S. Lewis, I feel like it's gotta be good. Okay. I am a safety first creature. Of all the arguments against love, none makes so strong an appeal to my nature as careful, this might lead you to suffering. But there's no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact you must give your heart to no one not even to an animal wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries avoid all entanglements lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness but in that casket safe dark motionless airless it will change your heart will not be broken it will become unbreakable impenetrable irredeemable I believe that the most lawless and inordinate loves are less contrary to God's will than a self-invited and self-protective lo- lovelessness. Christ did not teach and suffer that we might become, even in the natural loves, the loves between human beings, more careful of our own happiness than someone else's. Okay, that's a kind of confusing quote, but hopefully we get the gist of it. Okay? Basically, what C.S. Lewis is telling us is we've got to move from fleeing isolated safety, the safety of safety of busyness and hobbies and little luxuries, toward the kind of honesty and risky engagement that is love. But how do we do this? Well, according to the whole Bible, but let alone this passage, God's got to act first. God has to act first. His intervention is what has to happen. And it's so often what we least expect, and actually, if we're honest, what we least really want. Because God's solution to our problem is confrontation and conflict. And we see this in verses 4 through 6. And this is the second point for the the ninja note-takers out there. Okay, In verses 4 through 6, our pa- in our passage, we see a clear picture of how Jonah intends to handle his life, right? If you see what Jonah's doing, head under the covers, tucked away in his small, secure cabin, in the very interior of a boat, heading in the opposite direction of potential pain. That's Jonah's life strategy. Numb to the danger outside of him, and numb to the sickness inside of him. But notice that God and his mercy will not let Jonah run and hide. He confronts Jonah. He sends a storm and a captain after Jonah. Okay, and look at this. In a, not, in a short, and not very wordy book, verses four and five tell us something very clear. They said a lot of words trying to describe a storm, and I think we have to understand that this is important. Why would he spend so many? Why would the author spend so many words describing a sea storm? Because this weather is not just some pointless detail about the story. It's the very means that God is using to pursue Jonah back to himself and back to other relationships. To awaken him from his spiritual slumber. I just Do you realize that God can and will shake, will use the entire heavens and earth to rescue his people? To come for his children? I love the way that Barbara Brown Taylor puts it. What we've lost is a full sense of the power of God to recruit people who have made terrible choices, to invade the most hopeless lives and fill them with light, to sneak up on people thinking about lunch, not God, and smack them upside the head with glory. I love that. You see, God cares so deeply and so powerfully about his people even when we run and hide from him, especially when we feel the most weak and the most unlovely. Isn't that amazing? God cares enough not to spare no effort to interfere into our lives. And that's why he sends life storms our way. These crises that happen in our circumstances that knock us flat on our backs and make us face upwards to the heavens and perhaps even to God. I want you to think about perhaps that trauma that you've experienced. That family death, that horrific breakup, those, that wave upon wave of anxiety and depression, maybe that serves a purpose greater than personal misery in God's hands. Perhaps something minor that has become major, like a rough first few weeks of the semester of college, right? Maybe it's actually an incident that happened abroad, or a friend who's finally been honest with you and it hurts Maybe this is meant to jolt us into a greater awareness of God and community. And the jolting confrontation of living community is exactly what the captain represents to Jonah and what he represents to us in verse 6. I love what the captain says here. This is like one of my favorite lines. What do you mean, you sleeper? <laughs> Arise, call to your God. I couldn't really do my pirate voice, but I really kind of imagine that's a pirate voice. <laughs> Like a lot of R's and mateys. Um, If you read the passage closely, you realize that this captain is actually saying to Jonah the exact same words that God said to him in verse 2. Do you get that? Arise and call out. Arise and call out. What does this mean? That's no coincidence. It's a picture of the way in which God uses community in our lives. God speaks through other people into our lives. Do you have people in your life that you can ask hard questions about yourself with? Do you have people that you can ask how you really come across to? Do you have people in your life that you can ask, what do you like most and least about me? Will these same people barge into your moments of privacy and isolation and drag you out into public? Will they call you to pray and perhaps even to confess and repent? You see, it's oftentimes that God uses conflict and confrontation in my relationships to show me what's so hard for me to see, what I don't want to see and admit, that I actually might be the problem in my relationships. That I actually might be the problem, or at least part of the problem in my relationships. That in most of my semi-normal, semi-healthy relationships, I can hurt people as much as I'm hurt. That I can actually use conversations and people to my advantage to feel better about myself, to just feel okay for once. It's hard for me to see that and go there emotionally, and that's perhaps why... I sometimes have to see my selfishness against the backdrop of real human lives. But facing myself and confessing my sins about concrete and particular real-life instances leads me also to repentance, to, to a change of life that faces and loves other people. And we see this progress in verses 7 through 16, and Our third and final point. Okay? We're, we're wrapping it up our role in God's solution that is confession repentance okay look with me at verses 7 through 16 okay faced with God's storm and a community that's increasingly hostile and in his face what does Jonah do in verse 9 he confesses that's a confession okay he says i'm a hebrew and i fear that as i worship the lord the god of heaven who made the sea and the dry land and look, verse 10 clearly tells us that he's not just doing introductions here. Hey, I'm Jonah, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear God, who made everything. No, they know that he fled from God, and they're asking, why are you, Why is this storm upon us? And he's saying, it's my fault, and I know better. And I want us to see that this confession actually terrifies, horrifies the people around him. The sailors are aghast, Okay? Because confession can do that to people busy, pretending life is fine. Confession can do that to people who think every person's a good person. But I also have to guess that this honesty, as scary as it was for Jonah, was actually extremely relieving. Finally, he could be free. Finally, he could say who he was. It felt like relief. And I feel like when we confess... I know that when we confess, it feels like relief too. And so quickly, we see how Jonah's confession turns into repentance. Verse 12, Jonah tells the sailors, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. This is Jonah's solution to the storm, right? Why? Because the storm's only going to stop when Jonah ceases to flee from God. And how is the storm going to stop? Not by doing nothing, because he's still going west to Tarshish. He's going to jump off the boat and stop fleeing from God. But I want you to see this. I want you to see that, that sometimes repentance looks drastic and it feels like death. Sometimes repentance looks drastic and it feels like death. In the words of Matthew Henry, commentator, we must drown that which will otherwise drown us. We must drown that which will otherwise drown us. Repentance can feel like casting ourselves overboard into a stormy and uncertain sea. But finally notice the sow's reaction in verse 13. (laughs) They don't accept it. They don't accept his repentance. They don't accept his confession. And they're trying to save themselves by self-effort. Look, Jonah's done doing it, well, at least for the time being. There's a couple more chapters that he does it anyway. But also, this is our story. Every single moment of every single day at Davidson, we're trying harder. Trying to row ourselves out of a bad situation. Look, we prefer the self-protection of isolation to confession. We prefer choosing harder, excuse me, trying harder to completely control to be put together, to have it all under control, to be on top of it, to be unflappable. We prefer that to repentance. Why? Why is that the way we are? Pastor Joe Novenson puts it beautifully. This is, it's because we believe greatness on any level equals doing the most right and the least wrong for the longest amount of time under the largest amount of circumstances. We believe greatness on any level equals doing the most right, the least wrong, for the longest amount of time, under the most number of circumstances. But greatness in the realm of the Christian gospel is actually the opposite. It's being the biggest, fastest, deepest repenter. Because Jesus' righteousness is enough. I just want you to think about this. What if life, let alone the Christian life, were not about doing the most right and the least wrong for the longest amount of time? Don't you feel like you're just holding on with your teeth at this point? What would it look like if life were about facing ourselves with honesty, I'm often the problem, and turning towards others with the generous benefit of the doubt? Maybe you're less the problem than I think you are. But how how do we do this? And I love this about Novosim's quote. Because Jesus' righteousness is enough. Jesus voluntarily took a nosedive into the storm of God's anger and hurt. He took a nosedive into the storm of the hurt and anger between us and others, between us and the world. And you know what he did between us and ourselves? And you know what that did? The storm of anger and hurt ceased. Just like in the story. Simply, Jesus' self-sacrifice is the way hurts are healed and wrongs are righted. Because each and every instance that you feel afraid, that I feel afraid, that we feel hurt, that we feel fearful, that we run, each and every instance has been nailed to the cross. Each and every instance has been nailed to the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on a heap of skulls called Golgotha. Look, I know I'm going long, but can I just do a story? We have to end with a story, don't we? I could tell you an example of what this looks like by just talking about this past Sunday at church, but I'm going to give you a better story. Okay? Um, when I met a semi-famous Christian musician. Don't we want to hear about this story? Semi-famous Christian musician? Who is this guy? Okay? Important, I'm important. Um, look, This guy's music is wonderful, but this is not the reason he's semi-famous. Probably, he's semi-famous for a major public failing—the kind of failing, the the kind of sin that is so big, okay—that he doesn't just get in trouble with his family; he gets on the local news. And so, this this man in this concert, this house concert, slowly and thoughtfully told a group of us the story of how of what happened. And the consequences it had for him and his family and the church. And you could tell he was really sad and shook up by it, but I won't ever forget what he said about it. He said this After the immediate shame and pain of it had all passed, I felt relieved. I genuinely felt relief. I couldn't hide my sin anymore, and I finally had to be honest. It was like a great big weight left my life. Here's what I think he meant. What we fear the most may be the best thing that people could find out. Someone finding out that you're not the way you want to appear and that you're actually a real human being is terrifying. But it's freeing. What would it look like to live in this kind of honesty? How do we do this? We've got to trust that God is that good and that righteous. We've got to trust in his goodness and his righteousness instead of ours. And I think that's what this guy was saying. And he actually wrote a song about it. Okay, And a semi-famous Christian musician that I met in a living room in Florida, he wrote a song about his very public failure. It's beautifully honest and honors God and it goes something like this. And this is the chorus. I'm a desperate man. I'm in desperate need of your saving hand to come and rescue me. I'm a desperate man I'm in desperate need of your saving hand to come and rescue me. This song is not just true of him and Jonah, right? It's true of all of us, no matter how long you've been a Christian. We're still desperate, and we still need Jesus. And so let me confess something right here, right now, so we're just not confused. I'm a desperate man, (laughs) right? I'm in desperate need, of Jesus' saving hand to come and rescue me. What would it look like if that was what we told people in our lives? What would it look like if our relationships smacked of that confession and that repentance? Let's pray. Father, it's a hard sermon to take in. Um, It's hard to, to look at the pain of our relationships and to look at the ways in which um, you call us to be radically honest, uh, to not run, uh, to turn back. And I pray that you would help us um, for this stuff to sink in. Um, I pray that we would see your grace and your mercy. I pray that you'd, you'd help us to see the ways in which you meet us, that you come first, that you pave the way, that you're safe, soft place to land. And I pray, Father, that the takeaway for all these students wouldn't be Um, more to do, it'd be more to rest in. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.